0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 100. How do you define Python functions that accept optional arguments or default values? Or maybe you're wondering how to go beyond being a beginner with Python. This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. Christopher shares a Real Python article titled Defining Python Functions with Optional Arguments. We talk about function flexibility, specifying default values, and using args and quarks. We discuss resources for a Python beginner to move beyond the basics and become more competent. Both of us share our experiences moving past these hurdles. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news roundup, 10 tools you may have wished you knew when you started working with Python, manipulating your zip files efficiently with Python's zip file, how one company optimized Python API server code by 100x, a dependency-free Python library for downloading YouTube videos, and how to use Python in the command line with other shell commands. This episode is brought to you by CData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data, SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The RealPython podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. Hey there. This week, we got, again, a bunch of PyCoders articles and projects and we're starting off with some news again and this week uh, it's very pep heavy
1: <laughs> yeah actually i i want to stop before you get there uh, mr bailey i think it's really really important to mark the occasion this is episode 100 uh. Uh, that's <laughs> quite an accomplishment you work very hard on this you do good work and you know everybody at real python thanks you for that and thanks to our listeners for uh, getting us this far
0: Yeah. Thanks, everybody. It's been a wild ride all the way. (laughs) It's been pretty fantastic. Just watching people be interested in coming on the show and having, you know, I've met so many people virtually now and I don't know, I'm excited to keep going and here's for the next hundred. Yeah, that's, it's great.
1: It's a real contribution to the community.
0: Thanks. Awesome. All right. So what's, uh, what's our, now we can dive in. So now I'll start.
1: Uh, So the first little bit that uh, I'm going to talk about is the Django project, which has been promising for quite some time to reformat their entire code base with Black, has finally done it. The change was recently committed and merged, so it should be coming out in one of the next releases. Uh, It hit over 2,000 files. Ouch. (laughs) And the first stab at it broke a whole bunch of unit tests and needed some cleanup, as you can imagine, if you're touching that kind of stuff. So however you feel about black and everybody seems to have an opinion, uh, you have to admit this would have been a fairly daunting thing and is uh, one heck of a uh, commit.
0: Definitely, yeah, and then we have a a good link on that and then the whole discussion thread on Hacker News that kind of continues from that. My first story is diving into a set of these peps as I was mentioning before. (laughs) The first one is about PEP 673 and it's the self type and it was accepted the pep introduces a simple intuitive way to annotate methods that return an instance of their own class so it it kind of gets rid of some messy stuff that was involved with if you're doing typing in your python code and you have created your own classes you might have had to use something with this thing called type var and it was kind of clunky this is really clarifying it a lot. And there's a really good Twitter thread by Raymond Hettinger that he describes it. I'll just read a couple of his things. It was always awkward to write a type annotation for methods that return self, an instance of the current class. As of yesterday, typing self was added to make this much easier and more readable. It's a big win. If you're, especially with inheritance, that's where one of the problems that was there before and all these other kinds of things. So again, if you're doing typing, if that's part of your code base, this I think may help you, especially if you're doing lots of sort of custom classes and and needing to define things like that. All anyway, right. That's the first of the <laughs> What What do you got? So PEP 654, it's been getting talked about on the net a
1: fair amount recently. It's been around for a while, but uh, this is exception groups. It has been accepted for a while, but it finally got implemented in the recent Alpha 5 of Python 3.11. So this has got people talking about it again. This PEP is all about exception management and the ability to create groups of exceptions. So if you're like me, your first question might be, and why would you want to do that? So there's a couple different cases. Uh, The first is if you've got code that does retries. And if you fail the first time and then it retries and it fails for a different reason the second time, the grouping allows you to raise both of those exceptions. Okay. A second similar case is uh, there's this feature that I didn't even know existed is you can register a function to get called when you exit. And of course, because you might be exiting because of an exception, the exception handler itself might throw an exception. So again, this is one of those, let's show all of the exceptions possible in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Third case is sort of a tooling case. The example they give in the PEP is a situation where you've got an automatic bug reduction tool. I didn't know these things existed. I had to go do some reading. And essentially, it can find several things wrong with a line, and you want to kind of show all of that at the same time. So again, this is that similar idea of sort of grouping these things together.
0: Yeah, kind of unpacking them for you is something that you can kind of do then to show all the things that went through.
1: Yeah, essentially. And I suspect, I see this sometimes where you'll get like an exception and then immediately after it will say, while handling that exception, another exception got raised. So I think the grouping (laughs) is essentially going to make that a little cleaner and will allow you to actually catch those kinds of situations in your code. So there's going to be a syntax change and a new addition, which is accept with a little asterisk beside it, and that allows you to specify a tuple. So we're going to catch these exceptions together.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be really helpful. Like you said, bug tracking and figuring out kind of what's going on
1: you know python's gotten to the point where a lot of these kinds of features you know the the new type pieces or you know walrus operators or things like that where you sort of like oh you know who's going to use that but the flip side of it is there are these edge cases where this stuff makes it a lot easier so yeah maybe 90 percent of us aren't going to use those edge cases but cleaning the language up into these places and making that edge case handling can be useful
0: yeah definitely so kind of continuing the theme of peps there's an article by Martin Hines that kind of wraps up a whole group of them. I think it's like maybe 10 of them. It has a couple of the aforementioned ones, the ones we just talked about. It dives in and gives explanations of them and that has links to all of them. So if you kind of want to just keep an eye on what is happening coming up in the upcoming Python releases, this is a good way to do that. I'll just mention a couple quick ones. There's a, there's a, he kind of categorizes them. Syntax changes is the first category. PEP 671 is for late bound function argument details. The aforementioned 654 is grouped into that. There's a typing bunch of them, that the one that I mentioned, 673. But then there's a 675, which is for arbitrary literal strings, which may be helpful for avoiding injection attacks and uh, working with like F-strings and stuff like that. And then a whole set of debugging ones, 669, 678, and 657. And then one that he calls uh, quality of life changes, uh, 680, which is adding support for parsing the TOML format, which I kind of talked a little bit with Brett Cannon about. And yeah, so it's just a really good resource kind of gathering this whole group together. And I, you know, I I feel like it really fits into that kind of news category, like what is happening with the language? Well, there is a lot happening with PEPs and a lot of uh, discussion going on. And if you haven't read them before, this is a a good time to kind of dive in and and learn a little more about what's happening in the future for the language
1: yeah that f string ones is fairly important i think the the recent fiasco with the log 4j problems which you know all us arrogant python programmers are sitting on the sideline trying not to laugh at the java folks well uh, we we have the same problems in some cases (laughs) and and so i think everyone's become a little more paranoid about some of that kind of stuff and is starting to re-examine how we use some of those parts yeah and I just came across something today that those toml pieces have actually been included into 3.11. They were committed recently. So uh, oh, cool! spoiler alert, that's showing up in uh, this week's newsletter.
0: Yeah. So that dives us into our main sort of topic area. And you were starting with a real Python one. Yes, I am.
1: The first topic I'm going to talk about is both an article and a course called Defining Python Functions with Optional Arguments. So the articles by uh, Stephen Grubetta and the courses by Darren Jones. Courses is about 34 minutes long, so it's nice and concise. I should get Darren to give me brevity lessons. Very few of my courses (laughs) are ever that precise, and I have a tendency to go off on tangents, kind of like I'm doing now. So if you've written a function before, uh, you've written it with required parameters, that's kind of the first thing you always get taught, right? So you do your little def statement and it has some arguments. Yeah. Well, it turns out you can make some of those arguments optional by providing a default, and you do this by adding equals value to the argument. So if I have a function that adds an item to a shopping cart that takes two parameters, the first being the name of the item and the second the quantity, you can specify in the declaration quantity equals one, and if you don't provide the quantity, then it gets defaulted to one. So that's your first kind of optional argument. Yeah the article and the course also get into how this can be a little dangerous so python has a bit of a weirdness when it comes to these defaults everything in python is an object and objects have to be created so the question is if you provide a object as one of these defaults when does it get created It turns out it gets created at the definition of the function, not at the calling step, which might not be intuitive to people, and this can be a little dangerous. If you give something like an empty list, which of course is an object, as your default, your argument will be pointing to a specific list that gets declared when the function gets declared. So subsequent calls to that function will be using the same list. So if you changed it, you are going to get a bit of a surprise if you thought you were always starting with something empty.
0: So it's going to return like potentially multiple instances of that, that same list you get you
1: you get the same instance over and over again so if the side effect yeah. of the function is to add something to the list you are the next function call doesn't start with an empty list it starts with that thing inside of it so this this can be a little bit dangerous and generally it's recommended that you only ever use immutable data types as defaults so strings numbers booleans and that kind of thing If you want to do something like use a list, what you do is you set the value to none and then put a line in your code that says if that value is none, use an empty list. And that way you don't have the mutable thing inside of the optional declaration. Cool. So in addition to that, you can also use, you may have seen the args and keyword args concepts.
0: As I like to pronounce them, args and quarks. Quarks?
1: <laughs> yeah. Let me start off with args. Uh, you can specify it by putting a single asterisk in front of it. You can actually name it whatever you like, but everybody uses uh, asterisk args. Uh, so that's A-R-G-S if you haven't seen it before. This then gets populated as an iterable containing all the arguments that get passed in. So if you were writing a function, say, that summed up a bunch of numbers, you could declare that function to just take star args, and then inside of the function, you can loop through each of the items in args and sum them up and return them. So by contrast, so args is really kind of a list, keyword args, or KW args is a dictionary and it takes two asterisks and like args it can be named anything and like args you should stick with with what everybody names it. The key value pairs are the argument names and the argument values being passed in. So this one's kind of handy for optional fields. Say you were writing a function that creates an entry in an address book and the only required field in the address book was last name. Your function can then use keyword args as a parameter in addition to your required last name parameter, and then you inside of the keyword args dictionary, you could get first name and phone number and whatever else you wanted to pass in. So the article and the course both cover all this stuff and how to handle errors that can pop up in these kinds of situations, and they've got some pretty good examples to go through. So it helps keep it nice and clear, and it makes it a good way of learning these kinds of concepts.
0: This was an area that was initially looked really foreign to me. Again, from other languages, seeing those particular words with the asterisks in front of them, the args and the quarks, I was like, what is this? And so it was something that I wanted to dive in pretty deep into. What I like about the article and the course is they're both pretty short and get to the point quickly. They touch on this idea of the order of your arguments, what placement you can have if you're having a default um, and some of these other kind of required arguments inside your function definition And they have links to things that go way deeper (laughs) if you want to, which is great. And so I I think it's a good starting point for anybody wanting to learn that stuff.
1: Yep. Uh, And there's also, there is some talk, I believe there's even a pep for allowing a syntax change for doing late binding of optional arguments as well, so that you could get either at call time or at declaration time. So there's some conversation about trying to sort of fix this so that you could intentionally have either behavior with an object inside of the
0: declaration. So that's kind of cool too. C-Data software, connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At C-Data, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and big data. Check out cdata.com to learn more. My first one, we have kind of some interesting sort of discussion topics. And uh, it's interesting because it's going to kind of lead into my conversation next week with uh, Calvin Hendricks-Parker. where We were talking about sort of how he would set up his Python system t- today, like if he was starting from scratch. The article's titled, 10 Tools I Wish I Knew When I Started Working with Python. And I, I think we all have had that moment where <laughs> we've said, man, I wish I knew about this before. The article is on Medium, so be aware uh, as far as like reading limits and things. The author is just listed as Kevin. His first one of the 10 tools is virtual environments. And I don't want to spend much time on this, but I've talked about it ad nauseum in the last 100 episodes about virtual environments and how important they are. And it was one of the first things I started learning about in Python. I typically use the built-in Python language stuff with VENV. I use that command. Uh, well, Chris, what do you use? I use virtual lamp. Okay. So I want to spend a lot of time on that, but Flake 8 is his second one. Uh, if you're not familiar with Flake 8, it's a linter that checks that your code follows PEP 8. We have some good resources on real Python talking about PEP 8 and probably even diving into Flake 8 also. A linter, just you can run it and it just checks through your code. It can be something that you run as a command line tool if you'd like, or you can run it as part of your integrated development environment, or it might even be running in the background checking your code as you're typing it. So Flake 8 is a is one of the most popular ones that's out there for Python. And definitely is one of those things where if you're not following PEP8 in your code and a Python developer comes along, and this is like one of the things he harps on in the article a lot, is that, wow, that doesn't look like PEP8, <laughs> which to a lot of people says it you know doesn't really look like Python code. The next one is black, the aforementioned black, and then iSort, which I talked to Adam Johnson a little bit about, we were discussing developer tools and he mentioned iSort. I had not been familiar with it, but it, it sorts your imports, uh, not only alphabetically, but it kind of groups them together in, in an appropriate order. And again, both black and iSort are things that you can run on the command line or you can you know embed into your linter. PyTest and PyTest Watch. PyTest, we've talked about before. PyTest Watch is an additional tool that will like a lot of other tools that you might've heard of that can look at a directory. And as you're running things, if something is saved or a file has changed, in this case, it'll run PyTest and make sure that your tests pass. The two that I weren't familiar with that much, and I'm not sure, this might be for the particular way he likes to run things. He has one called Commitizen. It's like Commitizen. And it automatically creates the commit messages in the format of, and he has a link for this, the conventional commit and then it gets into a tool called semantic release which dives into semantic versioning and there are some schools of thoughts on that and you know some again everybody can argue over things like that but this is something that he's into and and tools that he likes to use so it's all about sort of like you know what version numbers should you be using and how should you be correctly writing your commit messages and how they should be formatted the next one is pre-commit hooks which i talked to anthony shaw about in a previous episode, they basically are Git hooks that run on different stages of the code of development in the pipeline. So it could be something that when you run a commit, these pre-commit hooks run, meaning, hey, run black, run iSort, run PyTest. Or it can even be when you push it. Something to look at. And then the last one is uh, getting into the GitHub Actions, which is a, a tool for continuous integration and continuous deployment, uh, CICD. And it helps kind of automate that. GitHub is one of the services. There's lots of other services that can help with it. And it's an area that I haven't had a big project lately or really many in my past that I needed to have this kind of thing going. And so it's something I want to research and learn a little more about. And I think GitHub is is an easy way to get into it. There's a a fairly easy path to, to dive into it.
1: So all of these tools are really, really important when you when you start working with even just one other person. Yeah. So I find when I uh, coach technical teams, one of the things that happens, you, you know, we start doing, you know, we're going to do pull requests, we're going to do code reviews, and it can very, very easily devolve into almost a hate fest because you know, uh, <laughs> Mister Bailey said this about my code, and I'm taking it personally. Yeah. And I find one of the great things about a lot of these tools is it allows you to focus on. Things like the code's design, because we're not going to argue about tabs versus spaces or you know, does the comma go here or there. And I don't entirely like the stylistic choices of black, but it allows me not to have to argue about it. We're all using black. None of us like everything about it, but we're going to use it. <laughs> right. Uh, and it sort of goes from there. Right. So it allows uh, teams to focus on the part that really is important, which is, are there bugs in the code? Is it designed properly? Do we have performance issues rather than dealing with the things that an automated tool can just sort of highlight and, and stop you from committing in the first place? So even if you're not doing it in Teams, if you're going to be using these kinds of tools is a good way to sort of get you ready for that and get you used to those kind of concepts.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I think is interesting to kind of point on is using these standardized formatters across the board, across your code base, is allowing for diffs to point out Actual code changes and not format changes. Yes, <laughs> and and I think that is something that's kind of really crucial with a, with a team of people. he's like, well, I think it looks prettier like this, and that's like, okay, now I'm now. You've made it an argument. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know back in the old days of uh, you know Java programming where uh, you know, I was using spaces, somebody else was using tabs, and their editor would do it automatically, and my editor would do it automatically. And every single time one of us committed to a file, it looked like the entire file had changed, yeah. even though there was like a one-line change, right? So these kinds of things deal with a lot of that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and so what I was going to mention is uh, I kind of go into this much further next week with calvin uh, he talks about a tool called pipx p-i-p-x and it allows you to set up several of these tools that we're talking about as uh, that are python command line interface tools pretty easily in your environment to not only add them or remove them if they're tools that you need to add to a computer that you're using this uh, pipx is a great tool to kind of like say okay i want to add all these little things that i want to be able to run and and check my code and make sure that it's following formats. And he talks about some other tools for synchronizing, you know, kind of your tool set <laughs> and your preferences across. Or it could be for a team, you know, like you want your team to all be set up the same. So these are kind of interesting things. I think that might be, you know, something to add to the title of this is like things I wish I knew when I, I started working with a team in Python. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I also just want to give out a quick shout out to PyFlakes, which is my preference over Flick8. It's slightly more forgiving. So Uh, it uh, does a lot of the same things, but doesn't go completely hardcore with the PEP8. And I find it a a nice little compromise myself. Nice. So what do you got next? So next up is an article called How We Optimize Python API Server Code 100x. This is a bit of a deep dive. This is by Vadim Markovstev, which I'm probably mispronouncing. My apologies. He's a machine learning guy, and the article talks about all the different things that he and his team have done uh, to get performance improvements in their application, the application itself does data analysis on server data, so they get stuff from GitHub and Jira, and then they munge it and build reports and all that kind of thing. Uh, and if it's fairly data intensive, and this is where you know performance can become important, so he starts out by talking about a couple different things that contribute to how how long a program can take to execute and that's the difference between things that are cpu bound so that's you're doing some crunchy computation that takes a while and then the second is something being io weight which is the cpu waiting on the network or the hard drive or something else that's significantly slower than the cpu so coroutines in python allow you to do io bound parallelism so if you've got a function that's waiting on io it essentially switches out to another function and this can give you a lot of speed up if you've got a whole bunch of functions that are io bound it will give you no speed up whatsoever if you've got a bunch of cpu bound functions and in fact it can even make your code worse you have to know the differences in your code and what can apply and what can't apply it turns out that one of the key calls in managing coroutines is, is something called async IO gather, and it's what sort of gets all the coroutines and runs them. And it turns out that it sets up the coroutines and runs them in the order you give them in. And this can actually impact your overall runtime. So let's say you have a couple functions and the first one has a lot of CPU cost and then it blocks on IO. And the second one has a little CPU cost and then it blocks on IO. Well, if you do the first one first, then the second one's not going to run until that CPU piece is done. You're basically making things wait. So swapping the order on it actually made a difference. And of course, in the article, they had, I think it was five or six coroutines. So they kind of had to analyze who was waiting for data when and switching out the order on it made a, a significant speed up to their code. The next bit of optimization they did was some changes to how they were using SQL Alchemy essentially by making some adjustments to the queries that could achieve a significant speed up. This is a Typical challenge that happens with any uh, ORM, Uh, it abstracts away the database and that's a good thing. It makes it easier to write to the database and it's often a bad thing when it comes to optimization because it's really easy to forget that this all gets translated into SQL underneath and if it's forming a bad query, you're going to run that bad query. So he talks about some of the tools of how to check this and how to adjust it and what that looks like. And then the a lot of the data processing that Vadim's team is doing uses Pandas, and they kept running into issues with how the rows in a database become columns in a data frame in Pandas. And he ends up essentially giving a general piece of advice, which is you shouldn't use generic object columns in Pandas. So a column in Pandas is normally has a type. Think of it like the arguments in a function. And he found that if that type wasn't one of the mutable Python types, you started having some problems. And it cost them like 10x in performance in some cases. Wow. And then along similar lines, they also found that pandas isn't as efficient as NumPy, so there were some cases where they moved from using data frames to raw NumPy arrays, and that made a big difference. And the last one I'm gonna talk about, and I don't go into a lot of details here, but I thought it was kind of clever, they moved a whole bunch of their tuple manipulation into a C library as a plugin. And the reason this had a big difference was essentially inside of a C Python plugin, you can control how the gil is used. And by doing that, they basically are allowed to lock it once, do all the code changes, do all the calculations, and then unlock it. Whereas when they were doing it up at the Python level, the gil was getting in their way. So articles like this are sometimes hard to read because they've got all sorts of implementation specific stuff in it. But I, I love this stuff. I, I find it really educational, even if I'm not understanding all of it, uh, just because it tells you what worked for them, how they went through it, like their logic of how they tried to get this and how they got different speed ups. And I find that very, very educational and uh, something to kind of keep in mind when I'm writing my own code one key part of it and you know the the mantra of optimization is don't do it prematurely write your code measure your code and then figure out what to optimize because anytime you guess first you're going to get it wrong and you're going to waste a whole bunch of time
0: so yeah this uh, this is great i'm trying to think of the term for once a project has gone all the way through and you uh, have said okay let's report on the end of it <laughs> and um what went went wrong was a postmortem a postmortem yeah so this feels like a bit of that where you're able to kind of dig through not only the story of like what was happening there but like he's really surfacing a great set of like tools and and little resources there's some cool graphics in here to kind of indicate like like you were talking about those SQL queries and where that stuff kind of gets mixed up. And again, how SQL alchemy might get turned into odd SQL code that is inefficient. It's great. It's a really awesome postmortem for that project. Plus it's such a successful uh, upgrade 100 times <laughs> performance oh yeah so. they
1: actually did it even further because the python part's the only part of it and by optimizing python and a couple of the other languages they use throughout their pipeline they got close to a thousand times speed up overall oh, yeah, cool it can make a really big difference uh, the, the, th- the other thing i kind of like about these kinds of articles is uh, like even if i don't like i don't do a lot of things in numpy so it's kind of interesting but that's all i don't because i don't work there but because there's five or six different concepts talked about in here it's gonna to overlap with some of the code you do yeah and like i don't use sql alchemy but the same problems apply to the django orm so seeing what kind of challenges they had and how they fixed it you know makes me a better django programmer even though i'm not you know a sql alchemy person
0: yeah awesome my next one is a real python one and it's from Bozo Ramos, and he has been on a roll. He has four full-length articles just for the, the month of February, which is pretty incredible. And in this particular one, it is a guided tutorial taking you through Python's zip file. The subtitle is Manipulate Your Zip Files Efficiently. Zip files are extremely common. There were lots of different standards when I was getting going in computers and zip was always there and kind of just kept moving along <laughs> and has remained one of these things that it, it has also become a standard. And he goes into this a little bit that it's used behind the scenes for like the office files where you see the doc with a X at the end. Those are actually zipped unbeknownst to a lot of people. They're little archives of stuff becoming a, what might be termed a container file. And he mentions a couple other that I didn't know an EPUB file was that but there are a few other ones that he mentions there. If you're not familiar with Zip, generally they reduce the file size, which is going to improve your transfer speed over networks. It allows you to group a bunch of files together to kind of deliver things, bundling all your code into a single archive for maybe distribution. And then uh, you can also secure your Zip file uh, using encryption. There's also ways that you can guarantee the integrity which is great. So zip files are are very handy. So it might be useful for you to manipulate them in Python. And this is a deep dive, really going really far into all the different types of things you can do. It, It goes into even specific compression algorithms. It starts with just opening and reading and writing the different files. The zip file module, you'll find this thing called a zip file class. And the class is works a lot like open um, if you've used that before inside of a context manager and uh, a lot of the commands are kind of formatted the same there's a whole ton of great code examples and files to kind of have you play with so you can kind of move along with it if you want he gets into creating and populating and extracting your own zip files and then exploring extra classes from zip file last but not least you can do some basic command line interface stuff, CLI stuff with zip file, uh just typing Python-M zip file and then running a lot of the commands just straight from a from the command line if you like. So yeah, again, another deep dive into a particular topic. And I think it's a it'll be a useful resource for anybody wanting to manipulate files and especially zip archives in Python. Batteries included, <laughs> yeah. everything's in that standard library. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. We covered it as one of the topics for this episode. It's titled Defining Python Functions with Optional Arguments. The video course is based on an article by Stephen Gruppetta. And in the course, Darren Jones takes you through how to distinguish between parameters and arguments. How to define functions with optional arguments and default parameter values. How to define using args and kwargs, or keyword arguments. How to deal with error messages about optional arguments. And much more. Mastering optional arguments will help you to define Python functions that are more powerful and much more flexible. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. And you get code examples for the techniques shown. Plus, all courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. And then the next thing we wanted to kind of get into is not per se an article, but kind of a discussion point for us. It's a uh, Hacker News thing that you found.
1: Yep, we're going to get all meta here. We're going to have a discussion about a discussion. So,
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: there's a uh, interesting conversation going on at uh, Hacker News. The user, surds proposed the question, how do I go from being a beginner to being competent in Python? There's a lot of good little bits of feedback in there. So if, if folks are sort of starting along their journey or midway through their journey and want to see different references for getting better, reading through the discussion is uh, definitely provides some value. A couple of key points that got mentioned several times by different contributors, the books Python Distilled by Dave Beasley and Fluent Python by Luciano uh, Ramallo. And the other one, which I hadn't seen before, was uh, there's a YouTube channel called Arjun Codes, and he's got a bunch of decent Python stuff in there as well.
0: I haven't checked out that one, the Arjun Codes one. I've, I've been meaning to, but it seems to be an, a, a very popular YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, so, in the
1: in the spirit of the discussion, I'm curious. Uh, you know, how did you? go from a beginner to being competent, or is that presumptuous? Are you competent yet? Uh, how's
0: the journey going? <laughs> I don't know if I want to have somebody measure my competence, but I, uh, <laughs> I I feel, after 100 episodes, I feel much more fluent in what's going on. I admitted at the beginning of this show that I am an intermediate developer, and probably my biggest... Weakness, if I was going to point it out, is I haven't done a lot of work with teams I, with Python projects. I was really developing a lot of tools that were, you know, kind of solo things that I was sharing with the team, but they were, you know, sort of implementing and using them. And, and so it's kind of more like a small business kind of approach of things as opposed to like a, a large group organization and, and working with a team. So that's an area that I want to focus on more. And that article from earlier, I think, might help me some. But when I, Got into this, and I mentioned this pretty deeply with my conversation with Michael Kennedy early on in the show. I said I used podcasts as a form of immersion, so I was listening to his show. And I didn't understand a lot of the things they were talking about. Very often they didn't slow down to sort of <laughs> tell me what that acronym was that just flew by. But I would hear the language, I would hear the ways they would kind of tie things together in the same way you learn you know, a foreign language, in my case, the foreign language with Python. I came from a lot of uh, bespoke kind of languages. I'd worked in Access and I'd worked in Swift. I'd played with the most programming. I had done a little bit in C. Um, I'd done uh, C and Fortran in school a very long time ago. And then I spent a lot of time hacking away in SQL and building tools in there and that's probably the, the real tribe off fire moment that got me really into programming again. And so then when a job came up that said, hey, you want to do Python? I said, okay, uh, let me immerse myself. And so, I, like I said, I did the podcast. I looked at a few books. At the time, I went through a Flask tutorial uh, by Miguel Grinberg, which is really great. I've mentioned it before. It's like the, called the mega Flask tutorial. And I built that tool that was very helpful. And then I looked at real Python a lot. I got a lot of resources from there. Along with the books and the websites, I was able to get the gig. I, I did like a real basic coding interview kind of thing. And, and I did some stuff in, in Jupyter Notebooks for them too. And I guess I passed. They hired me. And at that point, I had work to do, which was great. Because then I really could apply it. And that has always been kind of my way of learning is i need something to do i i have a personality type where i really want to help others and i don't always think about my own like personal projects or or uh whatever you want to think of in in sort of coding prowess i don't care about that so much i want to solve somebody's problem and that makes me happier than anything and so that was a big deal like having lots to do and and At the time, getting the job was part of that. Like, okay, how can I impress these people with my ability to learn how to do this? And I'm an extremely fast learner, but I also really need something to do. And so that's how I did it. I got into books and projects. How did you start with Python?
1: Well, sure. But even before we get to that, there's some interesting things in what you said, right? So I I think it's really, really important for picking up, uh, whether it's your first language or your 50th language, you need a project. Yeah. And, and I think it's almost always better if that project is a problem you're trying to solve. Sure. Because it drives you t- uh, towards it. I, I was working with a student a, a couple years back, and uh, he was really good at reading all this stuff. But when it came to actually sitting down and writing some code, he always sort of struggled. And so we had to, you know, let's find something. Like, let, let's build something. Gaming can be, although it's hard because, you know, obviously you're not going to be doing 3D shooters anytime soon, but like a text game can make a big difference because you've got something you can show off and you can play with it, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, for for me, so I came to Python late in my coding career. It's my ninth, or tenth language, something like that. Yeah. So, and most, like the vast majority of successful languages out there are inherited from C. So there's a fair amount of commonality between the syntaxes of them. So picking up the syntax of a new language tends to be relatively quick for me. The pain is always, okay, what are its libraries? How does that work? And, you know, what's useful? and same thing right so i was uh, i was at a company i uh, we were we'd been uh, acquired and we were in the midst of you must stick around while we shut you all down so we had a lot of spare time on our hands and i decided to pick up python And so that next little thing that came across my desk, which actually turned out to be a uh, request from the courts to uh, download a whole bunch of things that were suspicious off of a shared S3 drive. And so I had to write a little program and it turned out that it might have been 50 lines at most. But having that as a way of, okay, I've got my Python manual open on on one screen and I've got the project I'm trying to do on the other uh, helps you sort of get into it. yeah. And then, of course, you know, for me, there was also bugging the heck out of Jarrett. So, uh, Jarrett, if you're listening,
0: thank you for being patient. (laughs) Thanks, Jarrett. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and then uh, I think I've mentioned this also. Like, I I knew I wanted to learn more. I had been a teacher in the past, and teaching something makes you really, really learn something because you have to feel confident enough in what you're explaining. Yep. And when this opportunity to do video courses for real Python came up, I was like, oh yeah. And that really, I think has helped me get to this next level. If I was going to think about what I was going to do now, I really like Luciano's book. He explained in our interview that it's not for total beginners. It's not it's not a like our Python basics book would be for someone who says, "Hey, I don't know anything about programming," and I've heard Python is the thing. So you're like, you know, an office worker who is thinking about getting into programming. I think that that book is awesome for that. But this is for maybe somebody who comes across who can grok understand the language concepts and and the syntax he dives right into the first and second chapter into like the data models and special methods. <laughs> and so it's like okay how is python working? Like what is it doing and and those were things that were really hard for me to understand because they they looked really interesting and i would see advanced uses of those in like you know people say oh just go read code and the problem is a lot of that stuff when you're just just reading code is using you know pretty advanced techniques often, and that for me again it was like decorators and the args and kwargs we mentioned earlier. Um, things that just look kind of foreign for somebody who's maybe been using other tools before that are maybe specific in this in this way, and you need to know how they're functioning. And so those would be kind of the areas that I would dive into now. And I think his book is really great, Fluent Python, uh, second edition of that.
1: Yeah, I don't find that there's a lot of intermediary material out there there's a there's a lot of yeah baby first baby's first programming book which is very necessary don't get me wrong there, there's a market for it right and then there's a lot of specific of how to use exactly this toolkit in exactly this way and stuff in between or cookbooks can, can be yeah. yeah can be challenging to find sometimes uh so i find that like if i'm picking up a new language I'm often having, you know, I I plow through three or four of the intro books, reading them very, very quickly going, okay, what does a loop look like in this language? Oh, okay, All right. What what does variable declaration look like in this language? And then you have to go and practice some and then you're ready to sort of hit that next. Okay, now I go go to figure out how to do web frameworks in this language and uh, that so that there's always a bit of a gap in the learning space. So it's nice to hear about uh, material that helps fill that
0: gap. I will include a link to it. There's a, a one link that's in there that I liked a lot. And I guess the guy ASICSP <laughs> mentioned it. And it's an intermediate to advanced resources. And he includes it. And it has a few real Python things in there. Are Getting started with testing in Python is one of the areas resources he mentions. And then uh, I mentioned this before, uh, Thea, who was on early on, she has a Python testing style guide. He links to that. And yeah, there's a lot of I don't know, a lot of cool resources. I like this pie don't, <laughs> which is kind of cool. And then uh, a few of Al's book, um, Beyond the Basic Stuff in Python, um, which is, is nice, too. Al's book was actually handed to me at my first gig, the um, Automate the Boring Stuff. And his book, which we talked about on the show, Beyond the Basic Stuff, is really that kind of thing. Like, okay, you understand some of the fundamentals okay let's let's learn object-oriented and tools and techniques and practice and he always has tons of practice projects which i I think is like we said you know you gotta have projects and things to do but yeah if you can find a problem (laughs) that you want to solve then that helps and for me it's almost always rarely is it like just a little problem for myself or like a project for myself that i want to showcase somebody asks me to build something then i don't know there's like a weird motivation key that's in me um so like finding like you mentioned the one i had uh my friend in hawaii who i've done a bunch of different projects for who i built all this stuff in filemaker he came to me later and said i need all these documents from the site because they're going to shut the site down oh my god and they're like i don't know hundreds and hundreds of these pdfs and so i was like okay this is a perfect project for you know me to build something. So I built like you know a script that would just crawl through and grab all these PDFs for him. It was a fun project to to learn that technique and that that syntax. And yeah, it's a good, it's a good discussion, and I'm sure this stuff will come up again. But it's it's always kind of fun to talk about paths and how to continue growing in the language. And with Python
1: being so broad uh, community based, you're going to find there's a lot of different paths out there, right? Uh, you know you've you've got you've got yeah you know. Folks like myself with engineering backgrounds, you've got folks, you know, the, the data science people, you've got the machine learning yeah. people, right? Like there's there's all sorts there and, uh, and there's different needs for different sets, you know? Right. It's really, really common to write throwaway scripts in data science, right? You just need to clean this one set of data and you do it once and you throw it away. And so your tactics there are going to be completely different between that and I'm trying to build, you know, whatever Dropbox or something that is large industrial kind of application.
0: Yeah, I think about that too. Like the background that you're you're coming from is gonna predicate a lot of that. The in the case of, you know, like you're doing statistical stuff, doing visualizations, and and so I was doing a lot of combining of languages at the at that time. Just even just <laughs> learning how to harness the libraries that are out there. And that that's another reason that I, I wanted I listened to podcasts at the time because it was like a way for me to. Well, what are people using? What is common out there? I guess that brings us into projects. My project, I really like this project. It's called PyTube and it's a dependency free Python library for downloading YouTube videos. Before I go into a whole tangent about copyright and so forth, I had created a whole bunch of YouTube content since 2008. I have moved. Three times since then, and been through multiple computers since then. And I was like, wow, what is still up there? Like, what are, you know, maybe I should archive some of this stuff and have it for myself later on. And so I used it to download a bunch of my own stuff. And it it really is, it's dependency free. It just goes in and grabs it. It's a super quick pip install. I think the main contributor is Ronnie Gose, G H O S E. But it's a very busy project. There's like 95 contributors to it, almost uh, 6,000 stars on on GitHub. And the fact that it has no requirements is really fantastic. And like I said, it works great. I was able to download a bunch of my old things that I had created on there. It lets you sort of sort the order of the quality, choose the file format, a lot of these other kinds of tools in there. And it's it's actually documented well. There's a, a good page uh, with sort of that sphinx documentation for it Uh, if you need to download some specific youtube stuff like in my case it was my own work it's a nice tool and and i think we kind of discussed this a little bit before we started There, there are other tools out there and it is a moving target so the fact that it's maintained i think is going to be helpful for people that maybe need that resource or or and sometimes it's like i need it as an offline thing like i want to watch a bunch of conference videos and i'm traveling or something yeah i, I my primary
1: purpose for it before they added the uh, watching at different speeds was so that i could watch at different
0: speeds yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i thought about that for um a few uh, different resources i'm very much an audio guy and i often will speed things up um just I don't know. I can absorb information sometimes easier at a a higher speed.
1: Yeah. I I don't, I need a fat, I've got a fast and a faster on my uh, MP3 player. I need an even faster (laughs) sometimes. So yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) yeah. It's kind of crazy how you can do that. (laughs) What's your project?
1: Uh, so this is a neat little utility called PZ, and this essentially brings some of the goodness of what you might do in bash commands to the Python world. Okay. So if you're used to doing things like cut or sort or unique or awk, and like me, you know they're there, but you don't use them very often. And so you're always going back and going, how does this work? And you're looking things up in the in the, the man page, but you're a Python person. You're like, this would be three lines of Python code, but then I have to do all this extra stuff to get it going pz essentially gives you that so you use it on the command line and you can pipe uh it it interacts with the command line pipe just like bash commands do so anywhere where a little and you give it like a little snippet of python and it runs that little snippet on the stuff that comes through the data pipe so say that you wanted all the files in a directory but you wanted them all capitalized. Okay. So ls gives you all the files in the directory. So you go ls pipe pz and then you give it s dot upper. And s dot upper says for each line that ls spits out, treat it as a string. And because it's a string, you can call the upper function on it. And so it returns out each one of the file names in all uppercase. And so it's got this little mini syntax that is Python syntax, but there's some known variable names in it that allow you to Say I want to treat this data as a string or as a number or as bytes or give me the count. Is this the fifth thing in the stream? You can grab the whole text or you can treat it like a list and you can do things like skipping certain lines. So it, it gives you this power to do things that in uh, you would normally do in Python, but would be like four or five lines of code. But then you can just pipe it nicely inside the command line.
0: Yeah, I could see me using that oh, um, uh, for like changing the names of file extensions and things like that yeah
1: exactly it's exactly right and the only downside of it is of course it's python and the startup cost of the interpreter is a little expensive okay so you'll find that if you start piping things through pz it has to actually start the python interpreter underneath so you know if if you uh If you try to do pz instead of say cut, you're going to find that the pz is going to be a lot, a lot slower. Yeah. But if you're doing a lot of uh, mucking around with data or whatever, it's it's not like it's super slow. It's just you notice the difference because you're you are actually starting a Python program.
0: Yeah. Cool. That that sounds really handy. I mean, as you learn the syntax of of (laughs) you know several languages, you become more comfortable with them, and it's like, well, I don't want to have to go out and like learn all these like shell commands like down to that level it's stuff that just seeps out of my brain you know after a while like yeah so yeah
1: well if you're not using it you lose it right yeah
0: totally christopher thanks so much for sharing this (laughs) 100th episode with me it's been really cool talking with you again always a pleasure don't forget You can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.